Welcome back to The Foreign Desk. I'm Lisa Daftari. On this week's episode, we will look into the threat of superbugs. We have to worry about terrorists and you have to worry about uh, all sorts of bad things going on in the world. Of course, here at The Foreign Desk, we bring you the latest on national security, on terrorism, on foreign policy. But now we're going to take a look at the latest threat that uh, we have to pay attention to, and that's... um, Superbugs. And uh, the, the person who's going to break it down for us so well, uh, expert on superbugs, on the biome, on um, all things science and research related is Dr. Sabine Hazan, physician, uh, CEO of Progenobiome and Ventura Clinical Trials, co-founder of Tapelia Therapeutics. She's an expert on gut flora, the microbiome, and uh, of course, writer, editor, world-renowned speaker on this topic, and published author of Let's Talk Shit. What a great t- uh, title for her book and Regenesis. Welcome to the program, uh, Dr. Hazan. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, you know, I I kind of I'm, I'm I'm at a loss for words already because I know that you know a lot of people have turned their attention to these topics, especially after the pandemic we just had, to look at you know, um, bio warfare as a form of warfare to look at the threats that we face. How can we protect ourselves? How can we protect our children? And how could we know more? How can we get better transparency on what's out there? So um, I kind of want to start with your background because I think it's fascinating. I think you're brilliant. And I'm I'm so glad we have an expert like you out there um, doing this work for us. you're a GI, a gastroenterologist, um, obviously, you know, super, super educated, super qualified to do your, your own work and your own specialty. Um, but you kind of pivoted to uh, research, to opening up your own lab, actually, here in Southern California. Um, what turned you on to doing the research, to digging deeper than what we already know in the field of medicine? Well, I think, you know, for me, it started with, you know, being a gastroenterologist and not really achieving a cure in a lot of diseases. You know, think about it in GI, hepatitis C, we treated, um, you know, H. pylori, we treated, but then Crohn's disease, you have to constantly put patients on these medications every month, uh, ulcerative colitis. So there were a lot of, uh, you know, gaps in, in the teaching of medicine. There was a lot of, we weren't really reaching goals. And so... From GI, after, you know, taking care of so many patients through the guidelines, following the guidelines, I went into clinical trials. Clinical trials opened a different door for me, an ability to give patients treatment that was not available yet, right? That was not, that was still in research. So that was obviously exciting. Um, I was always known in the world of clinical trials as the queen of C. diff, which is a little bug that I tried to kill for about 30 years. Uh, with antibiotics. And C. diff is, a, is a, a bacteria that causes diarrhea and people die. And so, you know, over the years, I was doing clinical trials for these patients. And when clinical trials didn't work, I would do a procedure called fecal transplant. Fecal mm-hmm. transplant is essentially taking stools from a healthy donor and putting it in a patient with C. diff and achieving improvement in that patient of C. diff. And a remarkable improvement, 92 to 99% success. We had never seen anything like that in GI for this bug forever. So that world started intriguing me. And it also started, you know, a lot of us that are doing fecal transplant as GI doctors started paying attention to the microbiome, started paying attention to 
what else is improving? So I think the first thing for me was a case of Alzheimer's where I did fecal transplant using for a patient that had C. diff. And I did fecal transplant using the wife's microbiome to the patient. And then all of a sudden the patient remembered his daughter's date of birth. Oh, wow. So, so wait, just to walk people through yes. this. You, you decided to just do fecal transplant, meaning you take poop from one person and you put it into the colon of another per, of, an, of, of the infected yeah. person. Yeah, and I didn't decide. I mean, this was like in research for about, you know, since my residency. Dr. Tom Barodi, who's my partner and author of the book, Let's Talk Shit, is actually the one that spearheaded this whole field to the next level. I mean, but if you go back, you know, fecal transplant was a, uh, therapy of the fifth century China, where they used to give, you know, the piece, the orange soup. I mean, that's what they did. They used microbes of poop to fix patients with diarrhea. So, and it was, then it wasn't, so traditionally it was used for diarrhea, for GI issues. And now you realize- the fifth century in China, that was one of the ideas they had. And then Dr. Right. Einzman um, started doing two fleet enemas on, on patients with C. diff and found improvement. My path was a little bit different because I was always the clean, you know, not wanting to play with poop and <laughs> doing clinical trials. You got into the wrong specialty. Uh, trust <laughs> me. And so Neil Stolman, Dr. Neil Stolman, who is, um, you know, basically on the board of you know, American College of Gastro, who is a brilliant physician, was a fellow ahead of me when I was a resident. And he would, you know, and then when I became a fellow and then he was like my senior, he would take me on these conferences and show me the posters and say the future is in the microbiome. And we didn't call it microbiome back then. We would call it SH.T. So I said, I would say to him, Neil, please don't make me play with that because, you know, I want to just, you know, give pills. It's much easier. Right. But when, when a patient of mine, um, when the clinical trials weren't working and I had the responsibility of taking care of these patients, I had to step into it. And basically called, you know, Dr. Stolman and said, what am I doing? And he goes, figure it out, read the literature. Luckily, the literature was well-defined and there was a lot of ideas and, and methods. And so I did it and it was on a physician who was dying from C. diff and he survived. So from there, it became, you know, I would do clinical trials and then clinical trials would lead to fecal transplant if the clinical trial didn't work for C. diff. When fecal material became a capsule as a clinical trial, I said, great, we're in the fecal material business and we don't even know what the hell we're doing or how did we accomplish this? And so when that happened and I started seeing, you know, a clinical trial from Korea on fecal material on a capsule and, you know, one from America and one from China, I said, we're literally in this business. And, and I saw, in my mind, I saw, you know, a field where you're just putting mud and you expect it to stick. But what if the mud is harming humanity, right? What if taking the microbiome of China to America is not a good idea because you're translocating microbes from one region to another? Hmm. So that was the first thing that kind of came onto my mind is I said, oh my God, this could be a disaster. Because hmm. we've seen as gastroenterologists, and certainly I have doing clinical trials, a lot of products come in, they're very promising, and then they get into the clinical era or they get into the physician's office and we start giving these products and they fail. Mm -hmm. Or worse, they cause harm, like heart disease. You know, you'll think of like 
these pills for weight loss and people would take them. And then next thing you know, they would be blacklisted because people were dying from these weight loss pills, right? But just, I want to stop you, Dr. Hazan, just because I want everybody here to be on the same page. So you're talking about the microbiome being the most important aspect to one's health. Um, that's, that's, that's a very popular concept right now. Right. I know it's something that um, it, it's your entire platform. What is the microbiome for the average person? What is the microbiome? Yeah, so the microbiome, and that's why I called the book the way I did, Let's Talk Shit, because the microbiome is exactly that. It's your poop in the toilet. Now, you look at the poop as a bunch of waste, but actually it's trillions of bugs all doing something. So, and the problem is if you kill one group of bugs, then the rest of the microbiome is, is, is killed. It's like, and I, I always say this to the mechanics that are listening, it's like a transmission of a car. When you break down the transmission, the car doesn't function without the transmission. When you break down the transmission, it's actually 880 pieces. If one of those pieces is broken, your whole transmission is broken. Now, are you gonna take a transmission of a Honda and put it in a Mercedes? No, it doesn't match, it's not gonna work. So you have to start thinking of your microbiome, your poop, your gut microbes as this whole necessity tool that is needed to make a human being healthy or unhealthy. Mm -hmm. So, so what, and yeah. what we've seen is damage to the microbiome causes disease. So now taking that, how can we, how do our enemies, because we want to really put this on a global level now. So we each know that our microbiomes, our, our poop, our gut health is what keeps us healthy. Right. Now, what about this makes us vulnerable and how can our enemies take advantage of that vulnerability? Well, I think knowing the microbes that are particularly, you know, important for a disease, the same, you know, formula that you figure out that is possibly the cause of Alzheimer's or Parkinson's could be used against us to develop products that actually cause Parkinson's or Alzheimer's. So... We have to be very careful. And there's so much that we don't know, too. So there's a whole universe of microbes that, you know, our enemies may think that they're using one microbe to, to hurt us. But unfortunately, there's a trillion other bugs that they have no idea what they're doing. And, you know, triggering those bugs could could eliminate humanity. And so, that's my fear. So what's the what is what is a superbug? And how, how does it fit into this in, in terms of context? Well, you look at C. diff, right? C. diff, I tried to kill it for over 30 years. And C. diff, in, a, in essence, became a superbug, right? Because we tried one antibiotic, it didn't kill it. And then it became stronger. We tried another antibiotic, it became stronger. And then the only solution was not killing, because the, the fact is, the more you kill you know, the more you kill the microbiome around you, right? So the answer was really replenishing, adding more microbes, right? We tend to think, and, and I think that's where the mistake in medicine is, and with this new era, hopefully, of the microbiome, we will start seeing a different view on how to treat. We have been programmed as physicians, and myself included. I was the one that was one clinical trial after another, kill the bug, kill the bug, kill the bug. What I realized, it wasn't about killing the bug. It was about adding more bugs so that that bug could be, you know, suffocating in a way or right. stopped. So all these bugs are all acting together 
to do something and you destroy one and that balance is no longer. And the balance is what creates the disease. The imbalance is what creates the disease and the balance is what creates health. So can you explain in the scheme of what you just said, the, the, the Western world has an obsession. And I say this because I've traveled overseas and they always tell me Americans love medicine. They love antibiotics. They love pro. What is this balance that we go between antibiotics and probiotics? Are they good for us? Are they bad for us? Well, I mean, you know, essentially, you know, we, we have become a consumer, right? It's marketing 101, sell the next antibiotic, sell the next probiotic, right? That's what, you know, we as Americans are good, are known for is really our marketing tools. And so with the marketing, yes, you're going to take an antibiotic for an infection and you're going to want to take the probiotic for to not kill the, the good bacteria you've killed from that first antibiotic to begin with, because mm-hmm. everything is action leads to a reaction, right? Mm-hmm. So I take a pill for my strep pneumonia. I got to anticipate that I'm going to be, my microbiome is going to be damaged. So I got to take the probiotic. The problem is we live in a world where it's not precision medicine anymore. It's basically give this and try that, give that and try that and wait for the next consequence, right? Hmm. When we should be better at fine tuning the problem. In other words, what is the, the bug for that, that neutralizes strep pneumonia? Hmm. Let me give that specific bug so that I create, I don't kill the whole microbiome and I just focus on the precision medicine. That's mm-hmm. what we need to, we have the technology now. We need to be patient to understand it, to, to just mm-hmm. stop putting mud on the wall, like I said, and just expect mm-hmm. it to stick. Let's be more precise into the technology, using that technology to help people. So let me ask you a question. You know, you obviously have now dedicated your life to doing this research um, and and are extremely, uh, you know, dedicated to it. You have a lab, you have a staff, uh, you're publishing. Is there a resistance in the medical community and the government? So uh, there's two layers here, right? Yes. You you told me uh, an anecdote when we spoke off air um, about how you had to file, you know, hundreds of pages of paperwork to do one of your fecal transplants on a a child with autism. Um, You know, what's what's the resistance? I mean, how hard is this going to be to make this what you're doing mainstream? I, I think resistance is fear. Fear stops research. I think also resistance is ego. Ego stops research. Imagine the scientist who believes in antibiotics, right, is not going to be very happy that I'm coming out with another solution, right? Right. And then there's also that, you know, here's a GI doctor coming into a field and saying, well, all disease begins in the gut, which is something we were trained from Hippocrates, right? All disease begins in the gut and the oath of Hippocrates do no harm, right? So why have we deviated so far from that training to where we are all subspecialized in different, you know, in different areas, right? You know, cardiology, GI, neurology. So every field is threatened a little bit. They feel threatened. They shouldn't be threatened because I feel that there's, it's all connected. You cannot fix the brain if you don't focus on the gut. You cannot fix the heart if you don't fi- focus on the blood and the kidneys and the liver. You know, everything is interconnected. So we need to work better as physicians to bring those fields together to say, okay, well, you know, here's the problem. And this problem needs to be fixed by GI, cardiology, neurology, nephrology. So they all bring 
their ideas together. So I think rather than being, you know, as physicians, hey, let's compete with each other, let's work together because this is a unique opportunity. If anything, the microbiome was shown during COVID. You know, we published Mm -hmm. the first paper that showed whole genome sequencing of COVID in the stools. And then we published a paper that showed that if you had severe COVID, you had zero bifidobacteria versus people that were exposed to COVID and never got it, who had a lot of bifidobacteria. Bifidobacteria is the bacteria that's in your gut that in essence is the, you know, trillion industry of probiotics, right? But also in essence could be your immunity, could be the beginning of seeing your immunity. We are at the beginning right now of looking at, you know, there's a window that opened to look at the microbiome. When you see a case of Alzheimer's that's improved with fecal transplant, and that was, I was the first case to do that, you have to say maybe Alzheimer's is not a, only a brain, maybe it's a gut, and we haven't focused on the gut, right? And so we need to reproduce that one case. I had a case, like you said, the case that I did a lot of um, paperwork for the FDA to approve on autism, which was extremely costly for me to do all that and to you know get the paperwork approved by the FDA three years later. But guess what? The kid started speaking and saying a couple words, mama and baba. He was no longer aggressive. So something changed in that microbiome. You know, they said a kid that's 19-year-old would never improve, right? They said, if you use the sister as a donor, that's not going to be ideal because it's not going to work. Well, I proved them wrong because I showed with my assay that actually we isolated a microbe and then that microbe disappeared with fecal transplant. But not only that, the kid is matching his sister's microbiome. Mm -hmm. So not only the symptoms are improving, but the microbiome shows the engraftment, the implantation that was successful. I mean, you know, and and listening to you, it's, it's tremendous what you've been able to accomplish in, in these cases, but I I don't, you know, there aren't too many researchers and doctors that are willing to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars of their own money, time, energy. Um, I know fear is, is obviously one of the reasons um, there is this resistance both by um, the government and the medical community, but, I mean, how do the uh, the pharmaceutical companies feel about this this area well, of research? You know, pharmaceutical companies are going to embark when it becomes a standard and when doctors start using it more, right? They're going to start figuring out a way. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, I've worked with pharmaceutical companies for, you know, almost three decades helping to develop their protocols, right? And helping to bring their products to market. So I'm the girl that's done over 300 clinical trials. And then my siblings have done, and my husband have done a lot of clinical trials. So I'm in the world of helping pharmaceutical companies bring their product to market with safety. I'm in the world of looking at safety. I think eventually pharmaceutical companies are going to start looking at the microbiome and, you know, saying, okay, how do we make our, our product better? For example, I did a fecal transplant on a case of metastatic mesothelioma who was basically receiving Keytruda, which is a chemo drug with with Merck. And we published that paper because the the fecal transplant was a great adjunct, in my opinion, to the Keytruda, to the chemo. So what if we need to look into the gut to fix the cancer? What if we need to look into the gut to fix the brain? What if we bring the solution of pharma, but add another solution to it to collaborate to find answers. You know, the big problem that I'm seeing right now, whether this is, 
you know, and we're talking about superbugs and biowarfare. If this is biowarfare, it's really interfering with science and medicine. And when you interfere with science and medicine, you affect everyone because the leader that has, you know, a neurological problem will need that research and stopping or interfering that research will harm him or his kids. So it's never a good idea to interfere with science or medicine. Medicine and research needs to be untainted, non-political. You know, um, we are not here to sell products. We are here to help save others. We are not here on this planet for financial gains. We're here to help others. We wish we wished all doctors were like you. But uh, the truth is, I mean, let's let's break it down here. Obviously, we know that there is a lot of greed in in, in pharmaceutical right. companies, in 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 uh, in medicine, in in private practice, in the hospitals, et cetera, et cetera. Let's leave that aside for a minute. Let's talk about the narrative. I mean, you you hit upon something really important, and that's the polit- politicization of uh, these things, and we saw that obviously come under extreme exaggeration under COVID. Um, yes. You yourself did did so much for so many patients. I think you told me your, your stats were that you didn't even lose one COVID patient and you treated many, many. And, and we're talking about high profile cases, dignitaries and leaders around from around the world. I mean, you came under a lot of fire for trying to help people, trying to save lives with COVID. Why? I- and you know what? I have to say, God trained me to be this soldier. That's all I can say. <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I, mean, I have to believe in God because, uh, you know, God trained me. I mean, you know, I look back at my life and all the roadblocks to become a Malibu gastroenterologist. And I think to myself, wow, that was a training. And then when this came on, I didn't have a choice but to step in. You know, I saw the signs. I own a CRO, a research organization that submits protocols to the FDA. We have a, a portal to the FDA. I have I had a genetic sequencing lab that was looking at the microbiome for all diseases. We had already accumulated thousands of stool samples. So we had a good idea what the microbiome looked like in the old, in the young, in the diabetics, in, those, in that population of comorbidity. And then I think when I saw COVID in the stools, and my scientists thought I was crazy for looking in the stools, but we were literally the first lab in the world to publish on whole genome sequencing in the, in the stools, which kind of led, you know, the septic tanks being looked at, et cetera. So, you know, I look at that and I go, this is divine intervention, you know? And so that's why I never really was afraid. I was always, I had faith. And I think my faith helped me save all these patients. How did you save their lives? Let, tell us, what's, what was uh, your secret? My secret was really, uh, you know, looking at the population that I was treating and thinking in my mind, I knew that bifidobacteria was a huge player in immunity, in my opinion. And so when I treated the young, I didn't treat them the same way as the old. You know, I had a different formula with with different categories of patients. So the, the sick patient that comes in with oxygen saturation that's in the 70s and mm-hmm. doesn't want to go to the hospital... I had to do everything. I had to give everything because I had a short window where I would lose him. And, you know, one of the- What are you giving? Can you you share your phone? Yeah, the drug that everybody's talking about, ivermectin was one of the drugs that basically made me start, because what is ivermectin? Ivermectin is, it's not a horse paste. It's a fermented product of a bacteria called streptomyces, which is the same bacteria that's in the same phylum as- bifidobacteria. 
So I thought that maybe they are synergistic together. Maybe that bacteria, that product, is feeding the bifidobacteria. That was my hypothesis, by the way, at the beginning of the pandemic, because I had a patient who had an oxygen uh, in the 70s. He was heading to the hospital. I had given him ivermectin. And on a reflex, gut instinct, call it, I told him, you know what? You're heading to the hospital. Take 36 and, and get some French fries from McDonald's for like, you know, the fatty meal because you have to take it with a fatty meal. And then next thing you know, he arrives at the hospital and his oxygen was 92%. Something mm-hmm. changed. So that was my first case. And then from there, I started, I was on a, on a mission to take the oxygen saturation of patients with their fingers and before and after. Imagine the confidence of a doctor because a lot of times I would tweet on Twitter and say, pray for me, patient with oxygen of 70%. You know, those are high you know, risk cases, they're, you know, high, uh, they're going to die on your shift and, you know, to have that responsibility. So, you know, prayers helped. But one of the things that I would do is I would show the oxygen saturation on my tweet. And then two days later, people would say, how's your patient doing? And I would say, look at that oxygen, 95%. And then I would show the pictures before and after 73%, 95%. And through that, I decided to kind of accumulate all my patients that were like that, you know, the 88% that went to 92%. And I published a paper uh, where it was the role of triple therapy or multi-drug therapy in hypoxic patients. That paper was criticized to the max. Um, they Wait, tell us what, what is, what's the trifecta that you talk about? Ivermectin, doxycycline, zinc, uh, and then vitamin C, vitamin D. But in some patients, we had to add hydroxychloroquine because it kind of killed, you know. In so you, you use this this combination, this formula as cocktail of sorts yes. to save the lives of many, many patients who would yes. have otherwise probably died, and 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 been right. like millions of other Americans who unfortunately lost their lives. And, you and it, it wasn't, by the way, it wasn't just those. It was like Pepsid. It was budesonide. Whatever the symptom was, uh-huh. you know, if you if I felt like there was a lot of reflux in that patient, I focused on treating the reflux because then that patient and not would just get, the COVID. You mean not just the COVID right. because that patient would have aspiration pneumonia as he's refluxing. You know, a lot of these. But my my point yeah. is this to you: and of all the things you just mentioned, whether it's the ivermectin, the hydrochloroquine, zinc, vitamin C, vitamin D, uh, Pepsid, what, what are there any? Neg- are there any side effects to any of the things you listed? Meaning, why not just try this cocktail, right. even if you're headed to the hospital? And, and this is the thing, right? This is interference with medicine. This is this my whole hashtag, the whole pandemic was let doctors be doctors, right? Right. We have treated as physicians a lot of patients with off-label drugs, okay? Mm-hmm. If you take each one of these drugs individual, hydroxychloroquine, for example, which was politicized, mm-hmm. is given to thousands if not millions of arthritis and lupus patients okay so all of a sudden that drug is dangerous makes no sense now let's Why? Talk about- that's my question i mean and, and this there might this might it be was politicized. it was it was it was branded as a bad drug to did they want did they want people to die i i think they wanted a formula that was approved um you know by the fda because there's regulations and there's a system approach to putting drugs to market, right? There is, we have been always through, and I've been the one doing clinical trials, you know, 
when Helindac came on the market, which was the treatment for H. pylori, yes, doctors were giving off-label drugs, mm -hmm. but it wasn't until the clinical trial was done and finished that that those that combination became the treatment for H. pylori. So there's a system and, and you need to go through the system. I tried to go through the system with these combination drugs, but when I saw, I couldn't recruit. And remember, I'm in the clinical trial business. Right. Recruitment is what I know how to do. And when I couldn't recruit in the middle of a pandemic where people are dying and they're seeing, you know, then I knew there was a problem. And I knew that there was gonna be an attack on this protocol, right? Because my whole point of giving, of putting that protocol and putting it through the, the FDA was really to, to send the message through clinicaltrials.gov of my idea of how to treat the virus. Because I felt at the time that we were not in a bio warfare zone, that we were here to save humans. Right. We were here to you develop would think, products. You would, think, right? you would think, right? So to me, my first instinct was step in the fire and help as many people as possible. Right. And even though I came up with that formula with Dr. Brody and we came up with this protocol, um, you know, we kind of felt, well, the protocol wasn't just that, because really what did I use during the pandemic? I use different categories, right? I treated the kids mm -hmm. differently. I treated old people differently. So it became really the art of medicine. And, and I think that's why I kind of like stopped with the idea of bringing a triple therapy to market or, or, or uh, mm -hmm. five products to market because I felt, you know, this pandemic is really about the art of medicine and we really should be encouraging doctors to be doctors because we're going to stop innovations. Right. When we force doctors to follow a path, to take a drug that's been going through clinical trials, we're mm -hmm. stopping the physician on the front line that figured out how to treat Parkinson's, for example, or how to treat autism. Mm -hmm. And that's dangerous. I want to get your reaction to um, news that, that broke this week. First, we found out that the World Health Organization is abandoning uh, its further uh, investigation into the origins of COVID. And then the White House turns around and President Biden says he wants to give the World Health Organization basically carte blanche for the future. Um, any pandemics, the World Health Organization would come up with protocol. Your reaction? Uh, the World Health Economics is not a doctor. It's not your doctor. He does, they don't understand your medical condition. I think it's a mistake. I think it's basically, you know, removing physicians from from being there for their patients. Uh, is the world is WHO? Are they going to start doing colonoscopies now? Are they going to start treating patients with autism, Parkinson's? Because guess what? Us as physicians that are doing the leg work on the front line that have seen improvement in Alzheimer's after all this. We're done. We're spent. We're right. like, you know what? Let the WHO fix people. People ask me now because they've seen my data on autism and Parkinson's and well, not Parkinson's, but Alzheimer's. In fact, we have data coming with Parkinson's. We have a protocol that's getting approved by the FDA. Um, you know, people have seen that data and are coming to me. And, you know, my response now on Twitter is ask your politicians, ask the WHO to fix you. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm yeah. obsolete. You know, you know, it's, it, it, I mean, and I think for the, for, and I, I kind of want to bring it back to our, our, our main point is that the, the threat of this being a national security threat in the future. Um, but I mean, how frustrating for yourself, most first and foremost, but for Americans or anyone around the world, frankly, but Americans who couldn't even get the truth about this, 
whether they were on Facebook or Twitter or YouTube or in their own doctor's office. I mean, it seemed like this narrative was just taking over. And if they, you even asked a question about the vaccine, if you asked a question about, you know, alternative therapies like hydrochloroquine or ivermectin or vitamins or whatever it was, exercise, sunshine. I mean, there was such a backlash at even asking questions. And that's when you know somebody is dominating that narrative. That's when you know, when someone tells you in the middle of a pandemic, you cannot go to the beach. There is a problem because what microbe is going to infect me in the beach, right? The salt water is the best thing for me and the sun is the best thing for me, right? So we have on the planet what helps us build our immunity and our immunity is built upon the contact, the physical contact of human beings, you know, that sharing of microbes. When you look at my microbiome with my husband, we're very similar in our microbiome. Mm -hmm. We've been married almost 30 years because we share microbes, you know, one feeds to the other, right? Mm -hmm. So we need that human contact. More importantly, I think, you know, the, the big problem in the world is that the world needs to start realizing that they need to unite and, and settle their differences because every single region is has their own microbiome, which makes that region important to the whole planet. Disrupting that, you know, ecosystem is not good. Disrupting that balance of microbes is not good. You know, every race needs each other. Every regions of the world needs each other. Um, and I think that's how we come to answers for, you know, to, to balance microbiome, but balance humanity as well. And um, I mean, I guess I have two, two questions I want to fin- wrap up the program with. But first, I mean, how can people get the truth going forward? I mean, what's stopping our enemies from unleashing another, um, you know, super bug? Um, that that takes out our bio, our microbiomes, or, or or you know attacks our our you know um, uh, our immunity the way that COVID did. What what's stopping them, and what recourse do we have? I mean, where can we get information? How can we stay on top of this? Um, I mean, what what would your advice be? So first off, what is the truth? Right, nobody really knows what is the truth. Right, the truth is this vacuum of hypothesis right Mm -hmm. who is right who is wrong we don't know only time tells who is right who is wrong science evolves you know one day one drug is great the next day it's horrible so i think we need to be humble i think that's the first thing we need to be humble as scientists we need to be humble as politicians we need to be humble as physicians mm-hmm. to understand that there's a whole world that we have no idea. Think about it. We've not cured anything except maybe mm-hmm. two diseases, right? We're just palliating. We're just putting band-aids, right? Diabetes has no cure. Parkinson's mm-hmm. has no cure. Alzheimer's, autism. So that's the first thing is accepting that there's a lot that we do not know. The second thing is education. Educate yourself. You know, I wrote the book, Let's Talk, SH.T., in, in plain English to educate people on what the microbiome is. And I made it a little bit on the, you know, comic side to make it not boring and scientific mm-hmm. and to the public, right? And even on my tweets, I'm always there, you know, in plain English because I want to make things as simple because right. if it's not simple and you cannot explain it simply, then you don't understand it yourself. So that's the first thing is educate yourself. There's so much on the internet to educate yourself. There are, and follow wisdom that has succeeded 
in treating patients. Mm -hmm. You know, my whole big problem with this pandemic was the shutting down of the narrative of people that were successful at treating, right? right? Why are we following those that are reading books or writing papers but never touch the patient? Right. We should be following those who risk their lives on the front line and know their secrets. How did you survive exposed to all those patients with COVID? What is your secret? That secret is what I want to know to stay alive. That secret I knew, and that's how I stayed alive. So I think at the end, we need to mimic success. And we need to stop with the noise. There's a lot of noise out there. And those who are not equipped to speak about medicine, who have not touched the patients, who have not saved a life, should stop speaking. Because there's a lot of misinformation from, you know, the media to the politicians on one narrative. But when that narrative changes, you're stuck with a liability. Mm -hmm. So this is a warning that I'm telling to all the media. When the science changes, because it will change, and you were stuck saying a narrative that you were paid to say, you are now liable because you convinced your patients to do something that they should have listened to their doctors first. We as physicians have a liability on what, how we treat our patients. You know, it's going to be a matter of time till that liability is transpired to the rest mm-hmm. of the world. Mm-hmm. That's, That's it. it. A good point. I'm. I mean, I'm glad that. I mean, although you came under so much fire for just trying to save people's lives, that you've been vindicated many times over, many times over. I'm Not glad over. you were able to come Not here. Over. I'm just upset that so many people lost their lives that could have been saved by you and 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 your your um your formula. Um. Uh, you know, I want to end this program on on a couple of of constructive and positive notes. Um. First. What would you, just a, a couple easy um, do-it-yourself type of improvements that people can do to keep their gut health, um, you know, up-to-date, healthy? Uh, what, are, what are some, some good, good advice that you could give? So the first thing is, because is, uh, I'm a spiritual person, you know, search into yourself and, and decrease your stress, decrease your anxiety. That's the number one, because what we've seen from COVID, COVID aggravates anxiety. So decrease your anxiety, breathe, exercise, go out for a walk, garden, play with the earth, get one with the earth. Um, You know, that's number one. Number two, go get some sun. Vitamin D is important. Mm -hmm. Vitamin C is important. You know, nutrition is important. Mm -hmm. What you put in your body. You know, if you're putting a salad and it's it's full of pesticides, well, that salad's not necessarily good for you. Right. One cup of coffee is maybe good for your microbiome if, and that's what the studies have shown so far, but certainly three, four, five cups is not. So maybe cut down your consumption. We live in a caffeinated society mm-hmm. where there's a Starbucks and a coffee bean at Guilty. every corner. And that, <laughs> yeah, and that makes people anxious. That makes mm-hmm. people not sleep. And if you don't sleep, you don't wake up happy and that unhappiness triggers to more problems, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is, you know, alcohol, one glass of alcohol may be good, but more than that is not, you're sterilizing your gut, you know, everything in balance. Yeah. I'm not one to push one diet or another. I think everybody is different and everybody Mm -hmm. has their own uh, genetics or, or, um, microbiome signature Mm -hmm. that basically makes them who they are and what they eat. Um, you know, everything in moderation Intermittent fasting for those who want to lose weight 
is great. It actually, there's some, there's a study that showed that it increases your bifidobacteria. You know, focus on health, focus on yourself, decrease the things that are toxic to you. You know, mm-hmm. people that are, that are just like, you know, trolls. I like to call them. I tend to block them. I have this, this You game. would know. You would know. <laughs> right. Well, yeah. And I have this game now. I call it hashtag block a troll. Oh. It's like whack-a-mole. You can't get rid of them fast enough, I know. So it's like, why do I need to get myself stressed, you know? Right, right. Let things brush off your shoulders. You know, if you are attacked, uh, you know, be it at your job, at whatever, just let it brush off Mm -hmm. because everything will settle eventually. Absolutely. Look at you. I mean, um, as I said, you've been vindicated many times over, but now you're taking the science and research and abilities into the future. So I want to end on a very positive, constructive note. Tell us some of the uh, areas in which I think you you talked about Parkinson's and MS being areas where you want to take this fecal transplant um, technology research and and try to to, uh, help find a cure that way. So, uh, you know, fecal transplant is really a precision medicine in a way. It's really finding, you know, looking at a couple cases, seeing the microbes that are kind of elevated and then disappear. You know, what I'd like to do is develop that without having the need to take feces and implant them. That would be my ideal is more precision. Um, My interest right now is autism. Obviously, I saw improvement with with one case of autism. So I want to bring in like 30 more patients. So we're working with the FDA to get that going. Uh, Parkinson's is my other interest. You know, we've, I, we believe we've isolated some bugs. We're going to be doing an animal study, uh, to look to see if we can reproduce Parkinson's in those mice. Uh, so that's a very exciting, uh, new, uh, you know, research of mine, uh, Alzheimer's, I had improved one patient. So I want to do more, more patients, of course, you know, long haulers back that whole idea of vaccine injured, you know, I, want to fix that. So those are my main uh, focus right now. That's my main focus. Wonderful. Well, we a wish lot you- on my plate. A lot on your plate. That's an understatement. Uh, you're doing wonderful work. Thank you. Uh, you can read all about her on social media. You're very active on Twitter. Get her book. Uh, to to uh, learn more about the microbiome and to uh, to to strengthen your microbiome, she gives wonderful advice to all of us, from the healthy to the ill. Thank you so much for all the work that you do, Dr. Hazan, and we hope to have you back on the program to speak about uh, more of your research, more of your findings, and uh, we wish you all the luck. Thank you so much. Thank you for yeah. having me. Thank you. And for those of you at home who'd like to subscribe to our weekly podcast, go to youtube.com slash Lisa Daft Harry to sign up for our daily top 10 email. Go to foreigndesknews.com. See you all next week.